Thanks for listening. Learn more about our church and support by giving to the Mission of the Oaks at www.theoakscommunitychurch.org. Now, before Pastor Matt comes up to preach, I will read our scripture text, which today comes from John chapter 11. We have a longer reading this morning. Um, We will be reading verses 1 through 44. Please feel free to follow along in your Bibles or on the screens. Once again, this is John chapter 11, verses 1 through 44. Hear the word of God. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So so the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of Man may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, Let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought he meant taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died, and for your sake I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe, but let us go to him. So Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days, Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him? 
But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. This is the word of the Lord. When I was a kid, I got diagnosed with a um, kind of like a rare autoimmune disorder. And um, before they got it right, they misdiagnosed me with something much worse, uh, much graver. And I remember the day that I found that out, the the misdiagnosis piece of it. Um, I was out playing, and I came into the house, and I had a living room. Uh, full of family members with somber looks on their faces. And, you know, I had been really sick, so I knew, uh uh-oh, this isn't good. And, you know, so they shared the news of what they thought it was at the time, and it was serious, and I was going to be really sick. And I I don't remember much else after that, because I don't think my prefrontal was fully online (laughs) as a kid, Uh, so I don't really remember the whole conversation. And I lived with that misdiagnosis for quite some time. And I wonder to this day, you know, how that shaped me, because I know it did. I know living with that news, the serious nature of it, was such a loss for me, and I remember feeling very strange. And to this day, I still, I don't think I fully have unpacked all the ways in which that moment in time shaped me, but I'm sure it has. Maybe that's what turned me into a preacher. Um, There's a family therapist, his name's... uh, Edwin Freeman, he, and he was also a rabbi, and he talked about moments like that, and he, he called them uh, hinges in time, hinges in time. And what he meant by that was you have moments in your life um, that are so big, so momentous, um, when it comes to your relationships and things like this, doors open and doors close. You know, you get opened up to new relationships, you shut down some relationships, you know, and you have those, I'm sure. If you look over your life, you have moments that were hinges in time. And, you know, you had a relationship that ended or you had a relationship that deepened and strengthened maybe in some ways. Maybe you opened up to Jesus. Maybe you closed yourself off from Jesus. We've all had those kinds of moments. John 11, this, the whole th- I wanted you to read the whole thing because it acts as a hinge in time for people. Doors open and doors close for people certainly for Mary and and Martha. And we don't know, and there was nothing really said much about it, but I'm sure in many ways it opened, things opened up a lot for Lazarus too, after walking out of a tomb, you know. We wonder what took place, but we know 
that something major happened for people after that moment. As you just read, Jesus had three really close friends, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, very close to them, and they were siblings. And Lazarus gets really sick, so sick that he's going to die. The sisters send word to Jesus, come, come, Jesus, come quickly. Come do something about this, Jesus, you know? For God's sake, (laughs) Jesus, come. And it says that Jesus hung back where he was for two days when he gets word about his friend Lazarus, who's so ill. And John never told us why, did you notice that? He never explains, why in the world does Jesus take another two days? Why does he delay in going to visit Lazarus? I read a good theory about why. I think it was N.T. Wright that said something like, Jesus hung back for two days because he was praying for two days. I like that theory. That's the one I'm sticking with. Now, he makes a good reasons why. I mean, he says that because by the time he gets to the tomb, he's thanking his heavenly father for previous prayers that you don't know when he, when he prayed. And so the conclusion is, is that he spent those whole two days praying. Like, Lord, in heaven, you, you, you know what I'm about to do. Just don't let him decay in the process. Either way, we don't really know. What we do know is that the suspense and mystery would have been incredibly heavy for Mary and Martha. That the delay, the unknown, all the unexpected ways that Jesus shows up created an occasion for a lot of pain for Mary and Martha. We do know that, at least initially. Now I know for myself and my own story, and I would imagine for you, and I know a lot of you, I have prayers that from my vantage point seem delayed in him answering. You got any of those? Seems like I have prayers that from my vantage point, I seem to be on hold, waiting for Jesus to pick up the line on the other end and do something about it. I just can't see beyond what I am feeling in the moment, you know? The things that I feel like are still unanswered. That's what it's like to be a Christian, you know? We don't sometimes talk about that in the church. Some prayers seem like, what are you, why are you waiting, Lord? You know what I want, you know what I need here. Seems like a good idea to me. Could you please show up and do something about this? That's just what it's like. That's the human lot, learning to trust Anyway, in spite of unmet expectations, is so much of what it means to be a Christian. Just this week, I was reading, I was heading to a coffee shop to go read and write some. Before I went into the coffee shop, I took a phone call. I paced outside of the phone call. I always walk when I talk on the phone. This coffee shop, this particular coffee shop, had these really big windows. And I was pacing right in front of the windows, big black windows. And so because of the glare of the sun, it was like a mirror. You know what I'm talking about? You could see yourself perfectly well in it. And I'm pacing rather closely to the window, back and forth, back and forth. Looking into them, looking at myself. Probably looking for imperfections, (laughs) which weren't hard to find. So I'm talking on the phone looking at the wrinkles on my face, thinking about how I've aged, getting close. What is that? (sighs) I get off the phone, 
I walk into the coffee shop. Yeah. And along the entire wall of these windows is a bench where lots of people are sitting. I have been 30 inches from their faces. Just staring, picking my nose. And they are, you know, what is he doing? From my vantage point, I just, I couldn't see. I couldn't see through my window of experience. I couldn't see beyond it. That's what it's like for you as a Christian. That's what it's like for me as a Christian. We don't know what's beyond the window of our own experience. And that was what was happening to these women in that moment. What you need to understand when you read John's gospel, if you ever have before, which I would encourage you to do so, he's trying to convince you that despite your window of experience, despite your circumstances and what you're feeling and all your unmet expectations, believing and trusting in Jesus in all of those unmet expectations, all of those struggles and pain, whatever it is, going through it, even though you can't see beyond it, trust him, it will lead to life. That's what John is trying to convince you of through his whole gospel. Jesus means resurrection. He means life. He said that if you were to go back and read in chapter 10, he'll say the thief comes only to, to, to steal things and to destroy. I come to give life and to give it abundantly. That's the, that's the case that John is trying to make, that Jesus means resurrection. Jesus has the power over physical death. That's one thing you very clearly are learning over the raising of Lazarus. Um, but that's not all. I think you're also meant to learn in, in chapter 11 that Jesus has the power over spiritual death. Um, and what I mean by that is that um, he can change you. He can transform you. He can take what is emotionally and spiritually dead and raise it to life, giving you hope. You can be resurrected into someone different now. I think resurrection isn't just a, a future event that can happen to the Christian. I think resurrection is an event that can happen, in fact, now, before you die. <laughs> you can experience the resurrected life. Not instantly. Gradually, though, if there's belief and there's trust, you can change in your spirit, you can change in your mind, you can change in your emotions. You can. Jesus can do that. He can take what is dead and resurrect it into something new. And you see that here. You see, eventually, Jesus does want to go visit Lazarus after he delays. And that doesn't make sense to the disciples, you know, because Jesus has been getting in a lot of trouble, and they want to stone him in this particular region, and so they're like, this is not a good idea, Jesus. And Jesus, though, knows something. He knows he's cooking up some deeper belief and transformation in people. And they just can't see it happening yet. They just can't see past their window of experience. And Jesus looks at the disciples, and this is in 14 and 15. He just says very plainly, says, Jesus has died, or sorry, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe. So let's go to him. Jesus isn't happy about pain and loss. Let's say that up front. He's looking beyond their own window of experience and what he's doing is he's taking joy 
and what it does to people and what will happen to people if they are willing to pay attention to him and they're willing to believe and trust him. He's, he's excited about what's going to happen in these people. And this is really the first main idea I, I, I just want to present and submit to you is this. I want to argue for this, that to believe in Jesus, in other words, to trust in Jesus, means to be transformed by Jesus. To believe in Jesus means to be transformed by Jesus. And here's the thing about that. Transformation through Jesus, by Jesus, almost always will include confusion and loss. To be transformed, to be radically changed in your constitution will mean loss. It, it, it will mean some pain. It will mean some confusion. Welcome to Happy Dedication Sunday. But hang with me because so many people are being scammed and lied to these days. And I just want to tell you plainly, in the same way I think Jesus speaks plainly in the story, and I think that the plain truth of this can be freeing for you. I think it can help you grab Jesus maybe for the first time in a really profound way. Or, or if you're wrestling with Jesus or you, 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 you believed in Jesus a while back, you don't know, really know where you stand now with him, whatever it is, maybe you can come back to him. I think that can happen to you and I think it can give you hope. I heard a professor say recently that um, people always get anxious in the midst of change. Always. And it's not because they don't want to change. It's because that instinctually they know that change always means loss. Something has to go. You know what I mean? Like, radical change in your life often means losing a former identity that you've been hanging on to. Radical change sometimes means losing a former relationship that you don't want to let go of. Radical change might mean you got to lose what you've been finding all of your security in for years and years and years. And that stuff is painful and it hurts and it's scary. Maybe you've been clinging to a particular way of feeling loved, feeling wanted, feeling worthwhile, and that has to die for you to change. There's just loss bound up in your transformation. That's the way it works. But there will be gain on the other side of it. But in the beginning and the middle, it's just a lot, it's a lot of unknown. It's, it feels like a lot of uncertainty. It feels like a lot of confusion. It feels like a lot of pain. So what, so what will keep you like afloat, you know, in the midst of loss? the loss that kind of happens um, when you're being transformed. What will keep you afloat in it? What makes loss transformative into life for you? Because some people experience loss and they just get bitter and nasty. They get cold and they get detached. They isolate all of those things and they just stay there. Well, here's what it is. P pretty simple and straightforward. Easy to say, hard to live. But here's what I would say. The difference is this. 
um, what will keep you afloat when you're experiencing the kind of loss that happens in your transformation is this. Uh, learning, beginning to understand and learn how uniquely and powerfully you are loved by Jesus. That you are loved by him. That is what will keep you afloat and that is what will change the dynamics of that loss into radical transformation over your life. And what I would say is that Jesus loves you so perfectly in a much more profound way than anyone else loves you. And you might be, and I hope you are, loved by very many people. And there are three aspects to that love that I want to kind of unpack here. That he loves you. Notice in the story, though, first and foremost, how frequently John is sure to emphasize how Jesus loved these people. In verse 3, he says, Lord, sorry, they say, Lord, he whom you love is ill. That's the women. They send a letter to Jesus telling about Lazarus' illness, and they just say this, he whom you love is ill. They don't even say his name. I love that. It's like imagine if you prayed for people in that way. You don't even have to say their name. Lord, the, the guy you love, he's sick. Lord, the, the daughter you love is is struggling right now. They don't even have to name him. They identify Lazarus as one who was loved by Jesus. That's his primary identity to the women. I love that. Verse 5, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. John is really keen on making sure you know that. And at the end of the story, the people watching all of this will say, verse 36, See how he loved him. So over and over and over in the story, you're being told that Jesus loves these people. Despite your experience right now, Jesus loves these people. So for you this morning, knowing how deeply loved you are by Jesus, by the Heavenly Father, is it enough to make your pain go away? No. I don't think so. You'll still have pain. But it is a critical piece in helping you move forward. It is a critical piece of you having hope when you lose. Now, receiving and navigating the love of Jesus in your losses is what will make it bearable in transformation. So first, understand this. this is, I'm going to talk a little bit about the way in which Jesus loves you. One, Jesus loves you truthfully. And you see that in the story. Jesus loves you truthfully. And by this, I just mean that Jesus' Jesus' love for you, properly understood, will invite you to explore hard truths about yourself, what it is that you're motivated by, what it is that you really want. Jesus' love wants to press you in those areas. Essentially, what I mean here is that Jesus' love can and oftentimes is confrontational. When Jesus gets close to town... Martha runs out to meet him, doesn't she? She's devastated. Her brother has just passed. She says in verse 21, Lord, had you been here, my brother wouldn't have died. I mean, she's not wrong, right? And Jesus goes right into making Martha think. Did you notice that? He starts to make declarative statements about himself, about what he is and what he represents. And then he asks her a question. That's in verse 25 and 26. He gets right to the point. Basically, he's like, here's who I am, Martha. What is it that you believe? Sometimes when we're in a hard spot, we don't want to be asked questions like that. One time I, I took a, a heartbreaking 
heartbreaking relational conflict in my life to a, a pastor in another church. And I laid it, out, laid it out there, the whole situation, to get their help. They were gentle, but they presented me with questions about other perspectives. My, they, they, they asked questions about my heart. They asked questions about my motivations. They, they asked questions that caused or wanted, you know, were asking for me to explore what my heart was dealing with and where I was anxious, where I was afraid, where I was being stubborn, these sorts of things. And I, I snapped something back that wasn't very kind. I was defensive. And he gently held his ground and kept pressing, kept asking me to explore these questions. I gotta tell you, I made more emotional, spiritual progress in that one conversation than years worth of spiritual disciplines. I mean, I was offended. <laughs> but it needed to happen. There were things I needed to ask, some questions I needed to explore. And it takes a certain kind of person that can do that well. You know, I think of the truthful love of Jesus when I think about that, the way that he loves you in truth, you know, John said at the beginning of his gospel that he is truth and he's grace. And we'll get to the grace part. But it makes me think of, remember that thing called COVID? Well, one of the things that stands out for me during that time is how much, you know, following the initial shock of all of that and some of that time, you know, across the board throughout the country, churches shrank dramatically during the whole pandemic experience. Dramatically. Everybody did. A lot of churches lost a lot of people. For the most part, a lot of churches never really covered, at least in terms of their numbers, you know. They never were back to the same size after it was over. When you think about that, what was going on? I've had a lot of conversations with pastors about that. You know, like, was, was COVID a Christian killer? You know what I mean? Spiritually? Like, was, was COVID this kind of crazy disease that, that actually didn't just kill people physically, but killed them spiritually and emotionally? Was it just uniquely put together so that it would cause people to walk away from Jesus? Like, what was going on there? What happened to us? Or, or was it simply that COVID put us in a situation in which we were being asked hard questions that we were not prepared to answer. Like, oh, we aren't as robust disciples as we thought we were. Oh, wow, like maybe, why am I coming here again? What am I in this for? What is it that I believe? And these are questions that are really difficult, really difficult, but really necessary to ask if we want to be changed and we want to grow. Truth is important. And sometimes we need to be asked the difficult questions. And sometimes we don't always have the courage to do it. Jesus always does. Last night, like I said, I mentioned earlier, I went, took my two daughters to a, a, a dad-daughter dance. So I, I had two dates. And the car ride to dinner, one of my daughters, I won't say which, had a kind of sad, somber look on her face. And I, so I looked in the rearview mirror and I said, what's, what's with the long face, kiddo? And she said, 
uh, I'm afraid people won't like my dress. Yeah, oh. There's a few good responses to that kind of a comment from a dad. You know, say something like, oh, honey, you look beautiful. Right? Or, or oh, honey, what? Why are you worried about what people think? You know? Why do you care what they think of your dress? Which one do you think I chose? Neither. <laughs> I was like, what do you want for dinner? <laughs> Just <laughs> shining dad moment. Because I don't know how to always love in truth the way Jesus does. Jesus will love you truthfully, which means sometimes being confrontational. So I would just say this, part of what it means to be transformed by Jesus is letting him love you in this particular way, letting the love of Jesus question your deepest fears and perspectives. But to say that he only loves you in a confrontational, truthful way is not the whole picture, right? We see more in the story. Jesus also loves you, not just truthfully, but, but Jesus loves you tearfully. <laughs> he loves you with tears. By this, I mean that Jesus isn't just... He's not just cold and detached. He might be inviting you to confront hard parts of your heart or your motivations, your past, your desires, but it's not as if he does not understand your emotions. For God's sakes, he made those emotions. Eventually, you know, after initially staying behind, Mary, I'm talking about Mary now, Mary goes out to meet with Jesus in her pain. And it's a different interaction, if you noticed. Interestingly, um, Mary says the exact same thing to Jesus. So her comment is not different than her sister Martha's. You know, th verse 32, had you been here, my brother wouldn't have died. It's the same thing that her sister said. So Martha says it, and she gets questioned and confronted. What is it that you believe? What do you think you believe? Mary runs out, says the exact same thing, and she doesn't get questioned. For some reason, Jesus just reacts differently. He doesn't question her. He just weeps with her. Why? Why? Why the different response? What's going on? Why does Martha get challenged with deep reflective questions and Mary just gets tears? Did they have a different tone? Was their, was their presentation different for Jesus? I don't know the answer. But I know this, Jesus just knows how to apply his love in unique ways at the right occasion for the right person at the right moment. That's who he is. He's equally skilled at doing the right thing. What I know is this, and what this shows is this, and I credit Professor David Ford over at Cambridge for this. I stole this from him. But Jesus is both authoritative and vulnerable in this moment. He's authoritative and he's vulnerable. And holding those things together in your presence is very difficult. In other words, what I mean by that is Jesus is both confident and commanding, but he's also gentle and relational. His love is challenging, but it's also really vulnerable too. Jesus has emotions. Jesus cries. Je Jesus feels sad. Do you realize how remarkable that is? That, you know, the, the claim the Bible's making is that there's this thing, it's, it's this big word, it's called the hypostatic union, which just means that Jesus is both fully God and fully human. And, and, and to hold on to that in your mind is really difficult. 
I would say, just about impossible. How does that happen? How do you get fully divine and also fully man, fully human in, in, in one person? I don't know, but I know you're seeing it right here. He's the resurrection and the life, and he can be confrontational and truthful and at the same time weep and be emotional. He's holding both together. Very human, you know. With, in, in a sense, it's like with Martha, he's fully God. And then with, 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 with Mary, he's fully human. And he just cries. If you think of your perfect doctor, you know, if you can imagine that one, you're really sick, you're in a lot of pain, you want a doctor that is wise and commanding, right? You want him or her to know exactly what's happening in your body and know what the path forward is. You want him or her to be able to speak with confidence on how to guide you towards health. But if, if you have a doctor who has that and also has great bedside manner, you ever had one of those doctors? You're like, I love this doctor. You know what I mean? They sit with me longer. They ask me more questions. They seem to really get how I'm feeling. So seldom that you get both of those experiences, authoritative and vulnerable at the same time. This is what Jesus is and does for you. This is the way in which he loves you. No one loves you with supreme grace and truth at the same time the way Jesus does. No one. No one in your life. I mean, my guess is, is this. You have people in your life. Think about your community, your family. You have people in your life, and they are truth tellers for you. And you're like, uh-huh. Now, I don't want to see any elbowing to any spouses during this. But you have people that are like this. You have people that love you in the way that they poke and prod you with hard questions. You know what I mean? You, 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 what we, it's those people in your life that are like, well, they just... It's those people that say things like, I just tell it like it is. Oh, thank you for telling it like it is. You know? And the truth of it is, those people are helpful sometimes. You know? They bring the truth. But they're not the ones that you always go to, right? When it's like, I just need somebody to sit with me. I don't need poked and prodded right now. I need an arm on my shoulder. I need a hug. You know, whatever it is. I just need somebody to sit and relate and to mirror to attune to my feelings and just let me feel like, I've, like my emotions are understood. I got to tell you, as a pastor, I have learned the hard way over the years. I am absolutely terrible at both knowing which one to do at the right moment. It's very difficult. And the, but the thing is, you also have people in your life that you have empaths in your life. They're the people that you can go to and they'll just sit with you, they'll listen and they'll cry with you and they will never ask you a hard question. And sometimes maybe you're sitting with them way too much. You're not getting any guidance forward. You're not getting challenged. You're just getting somebody that just loves to reflect and mirror what you're feeling. Jesus does both of them. And I would just say this on this piece, that this is why no feeling that you're feeling right now is somehow unrecognizable to Jesus. Whatever the feeling is, it is totally legitimate in Jesus' existence. He knows what you're feeling. He's fully human, yet without sin, so you can bring him that stuff. That's what the Bible's telling us. Now lastly, I would say this. He doesn't just love you truthfully. He just doesn't love you tearfully. He also loves you defensively defensively. And I don't mean that Jesus' love 
is defensive towards you, I mean Jesus' love is defensive over you. It's defensive over you. Verse 33, John says that Jesus was deeply moved in his spirit and it says that he was greatly troubled. Greatly troubled. Now that translation keeps the real meaning a little vague and I suppose that the translators did that because they didn't want to bring confusion into the picture for you as you read it. But technically, it just means this, that Jesus snorts with anger in this scene. He is snorting with anger. I consulted multiple language scholars because I'm not one of those, so I need to read those people. I consulted multiple language scholars here and they all say something like this, that Jesus is snorting with outrage as he is approaching the tomb of his friend Lazarus. You ever had snorting anger before? He's furious and he's angry. Who's he angry with? Is he angry with Mary? No. He's crying with her. Is he, is he angry with the crowd that's crying behind her? No. He's not, he's not angry. Is he angry at his heavenly father for letting this happen? No, he's thanking his heavenly father in prayer. So who's he angry with? He's angry with death itself. He's outraged over what death has done in this world. You see, Jesus knows the real situation that we fail to recognize sometimes. Is this, this, we sin, we fail, we carry shame. All of that is true. We don't show up as we should. And at some point, we die. But it was never meant to be that way. And it's remarkable, you know. Jesus knows he's about to fix this situation with Lazarus, but he knows the greater situation at hand, and, it's, and it angers him. I mean, I just think Jesus in this scene, it's conjecture on my part, but I just think he's holding on. He's holding on to anger and sadness that he's been holding on to for years and years and years and years, ever since the very beginning in Genesis 2, when God looked at Adam and Eve, and he said, don't eat of this tree, because if you do, in that day you will die. And then an enemy slips in one chapter later in Genesis 3 and says, don't listen to him. He's petty. He's narcissistic. He is he's insecure. He's worried about what you're going to do. And guess what? You won't surely die. And so they ate. And ever since then, we've been hurting each other, we've been running from God, and we've been getting sick, and we've been dying ever since. And Jesus is angry over this. He's angry. And you know, when I grew up in the church, I almost always heard sermons, at least that was my experience, that were judgment sermons. You know, that Jesus is angry with sin, and you need to repent because you're going to have to give an account for your life. And if you go to him and you can repent, you'll be forgiven and welcomed in. And I, that is true. But I got to tell you, I don't remember hearing many sermons where I heard preachers stand up and say, but guess what? He's also really, really angry over what sin has done and how it hurts you and how it wants to kill you. That would have meant a lot to me as a kid because I was bullied a lot. And it would have meant something to me to hear somebody say, guess what, God is angry over that. He's defensive over you. He doesn't want you to die. And he hates what sin has done. And yeah, is it our fault? Absolutely. But this is the kind of love he has. He knows it's our fault, but that doesn't mean he's not angry and he's upset because it's robbing us of our joy in our life. He's angry over sin. Yes, but he's ultimately, friends, he is angry over evil. 
and how evil keeps causing us to hurt each other and to leave each other and to walk away from him. The whole thing enrages Jesus. And we know that he's defensive over us because he doesn't get angry over the loss when he sees all this happening in the world and then stomp off. We know he's defensive over us because he looks at all the loss and he stoops down. And he comes down and takes death on himself. Because as Jesus is raising and calling Lazarus out of the tomb, he knows full well that while his love is resurrecting his friend, he knows that it's that love, that same love is going to put him in the tomb. Immediately after the miracle that he performs for Lazarus, John tells us this in verse 53. We didn't read it. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. When he did this, that was it. That was the nail in the coffin. The religious authorities could take no more of him. And he knew that. He knew that in that moment. And he does it anyway. And they, of course, do succeed in this. They put him to death. But his death brought you life. He knew what he was doing. It didn't just lead to his resurrection, but it leads to yours. And so let me just leave you with two invitations as we come up to the table in a second. In verse 11, it says, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. This is what Jesus said. He's died, he's dead, but I want to go to him anyway. I'm going to wake him up. Now, here's how I read that for you today. In the same way that Lazarus wasn't too dead for Jesus to go awaken him and resurrect him, neither are you. And some of you have felt dead for a very long time, and it is not too late. There is always time for you to be transformed and changed. He likes to go to dead people. He loves to go Wake up dead people. Two, in verse 20, when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. And it says this, but Mary remained seated in the house. Why? Why isn't she running out like Martha? Why is she staying in? We're not told. But my guess is this, something like this. Maybe she's too sad. Maybe she's too angry with him for not showing up on time. What I know of is this. This is true of my life, and it's true of many people that I know. Loss, pain, and anger tend to cause us to isolate. We stay inside the house. I'm not coming out. Anybody? But later, notice this. Martha talks with Jesus. She runs back in. Verse 28, she says she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and he's calling for you. And so I would just say this. This is what I think this means for you. Some of you, some of you have retreated and walled yourself off from Jesus and the, his community because of your losses and your pain. And I want you to hear me say, I get it. You're human just like Mary was human. And what I love about the scene is that Jesus doesn't give Mary a lecture. He just weeps with her. He calls her out and says, come on out of the house. I just want to cry with you. And I would just say, if you've walled yourself off from Jesus and his community 
because of your own pain and your losses and your trials. Jesus is not giving you a lecture either. He knows what you've lost. And he's saying, maybe quite possibly, he's saying to you privately in your heart, he's saying, it's time to come out. It's time to come out. It's time to start talking to Jesus again. It's time to start talking and and fellowshipping with his community again. Come back into the community and trust what Jesus will do when you get there. That's all I would invite you to do, to consider this morning, wherever you're at in that place. Thanks for listening. Learn more about our church and support by giving to the Mission of the Oaks at www.theoakscommunitychurch.org.